It's really interesting to me because the tariff seems to me to be something you would do to an enemy. So we don't like the way the Iranians handle things in their part of the world. So we put economic sanctions on them, and mm -hmm. we try and isolate them, and we forbid them from getting certain parts and technologies. And so we don't like the way the Russians are behaving. So we say, you know what, we're going to put in economic sanctions, and we're going to forbid some technologies and this and that. And, you know, the North Koreans, we don't like their, their policies. So we say, sure. you know what, you can't have this or that. So what the tariffs do, uh, have done is they've taken our federal government and it has done the same thing to the American worker in metalworking that we're doing to but the I, Iranians and the Russians and the North Koreans. You guys now have to pay more for the steel. We're going to control mm -hmm. your access to this. It's We would do that in time of war. We would do that to an enemy. It's not a time of war, and they're doing that to us. This is the Today's Machining World podcast. I'm Noah Graff, and today I'm here with Miles Free, Director of Industry Research and Technology of the Precision Machined Products Association. I caught up with Miles while in Chicago for the association's national tech conference. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graff Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. How's it going today, Miles? It's going great, Noah. Thanks for having me. Before we go any further, in a nutshell for all our listeners, what is the PMPA? That's a great question. So the Precision Machine Products Association is a, uh, a trade association that's dedicated to helping members of uh, the machining trades, um, our companies adapt and thrive. So we've got about 440 member companies across the country. They produce parts for automotive, for air, aerospace, uh, for medical, for a lot of electronics and appliances. Our members make the parts that make most technologies function. As the director of industry research and technology, what does that entail? Sure. So uh, those of you who are of a certain age may may remember the Shell Answer Man. So part of my function is to be the Shell Answer Man for steel, for machining, for quality, for regulatory issues, and uh, even working now on emerging issues with government uh, and legislation and, and obviously the tariffs. So if it's basically a multi-syllable word, it's probably on my desk. So you're the guru. 
Well, I've been called the guru. I think of myself as helpful guy. Give us a little background on you. Uh, well, my story is is interesting one. I served my apprenticeship, not a formal apprenticeship, but I spent uh, a lot of years in the steel industry. I put myself through college shoveling iron ore in Youngstown at a sintering plant. And um, when that plant closed, I moved to Lorraine as, as an hourly employee. I shoveled iron ore spillage off the ore boats on the ore docks. I moved up into a, a clerical position, and then we had uh, an environmental challenge at our Coke plant, and I was one of the uh, three people that was selected to be an environmental tester, and I would actually, I'm an, officially, I'm an expert witness on visible emissions. So I could read a smoke plume at that time, and if I rated it an opacity of 20 or 25%, that was the opacity. We didn't, you can't just stick a meter up on the top of a stack. So human observers were required to do that. So I passed the test for that. So I was a smoke reader. Um, smoke reader. A smoke reader. So then we, um, we succeeded in reducing the amount of visible emissions used to charge our Coke ovens. Visible emissions. Visible emissions, right which is what you can measure, what you can see. And as a result of that, we were able to keep, keep the coke plant going in Lorraine for probably another four or five years. What's the difference between visible emissions and there's invisible emissions, I gather? Well, I, I imagine there are. We, you know, the, the law talked about visible emissions. We invented a way to put the coal into the oven. So a coke plant, we're cooking all the volatile matter out of the coal, to make a real uh, strong, porous product that you can put into the blast furnace to support the burden and, and react and turn the iron ore into, into uh, raw iron. Okay. And so we needed this coke uh, to do this. And when you put raw coal into an oven that's 28, 2900 degrees, there's going to be smoke. We came out with a way to do it minimizing the emissions, containing all the emissions, capturing them in our byproducts, takeoffs, and we're able to keep this plant going, which meant more steel out of that out of Lorraine. And were the the standards you had then, would they fly now? They closed that plant for economic reasons. I haven't kept up with it. But my my point is that uh, almost any aspect of steel making, I've I've been there, I've smoked it, I've shoveled it, I've inhaled it, you know, <laughs> as, as part of the job. And um, after we got this uh, coke plant uh, process uh, in shape, uh, those of us who were on that original team were given promotions, and they said, "Well, where would you like to go?" and the other guys on the team, I thought, made a pretty silly decision. They said, well, I'd like to be a foreman in the Coke plant. And I, I'd had my two years of Coke plant. <laughs> so um, I said, I'd like to be a lab foreman. And so I went to the pipe mill labs. I was responsible for all chemical testing. And which company was this at? This was U.S. Steel Lorraine. U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel. So we did uh, chemical tests for uh, analyzed all the steel products. We're, we made uh, semi-finish and finish. Is this in the 80s? This is in the 80s. So this is from, I started at U.S. Steel in Youngstown in 73. In 78, I transferred to Lorraine. And by 84, I was uh, 
let go with 174 other uh, first-line supervisors due to the pressure on the steel industry from Japanese imports. Mm. But uh, at that time, I was the lab supervisor, and so we did chemical testing, we did leco analysis for carbon and sulfur, wet chemistry for manganese, used some X-ray uh, spectrometers for everything else, did mechanical testing. We literally pulled the steel into two pieces to determine how strong it was for the Arctic pipeline. How do you pull the steel into two pieces? Well, first you machine a test coupon out of a piece of pipe, and, and then you mill it down in an area so that we know it's a controlled area. And then we put it in a machine with monster hydraulics and screws, and it, we grab it, and then we just separate the heads until it, until it separates. And so there's a point at which it's going to yield or, or permanent, take a permanent offset, and then it's going to start to stretch and elongate, and then it breaks. And at that point, we've got our ultimate strength, the needle goes down, we've got the highest point, and, Interesting. and then we do the math. Yeah, I had probably a 20-inch slide rule we used. That was before there were calculators. They talk about Chinese steel versus American steel. Can you shed some light on that? What, what's the difference? Well, I, I think it would be hard for a lot of people, uh, even experts, to take an, a, a certificate of analysis and say, well, this came from from China or this came from the U.S., but uh, the certificate of analysis isn't, isn't the only aspect of, of quality or of proof of good delivery in a product. So um, in 2003, the PMPA actually took a, a group of our members to China, and we, we went on that, we called it a study mission, and so we saw that there were a lot of differences between the systems that the Chinese uh, manufacturers had and uh, the, the rule of law and the way, the way rules and regulations worked in China as opposed to here. So, so um, when you buy steel from an American supplier, you've got kind of this legal infrastructure that assures you that anything that they say about it, any representation they make, you can take that to the bank. Okay. When you're buying material off the dock <laughs> and it came out of a container and you don't really know who the counterparty was on the other end, uh, there's just a little more risk involved in, in, in understanding that. Now, there, there are differences in quality. There can be differences if it's melted with an electric furnace versus a basic oxygen process, whether there's a lot of uh, uh, scrap residuals in because it's uh, uh, the electric furnace, uh, which may or may not be uh, a problem. It may be helpful to you if you're trying to get mechanical properties. So there's just a lot of aspects of steel mm -hmm. And that's just talking about the chemistry and the way it's made. We can look at cleanliness. We can look at mechanical properties that are developed, whether it was rolled, whether it was cold finished correctly. There's Should we be afraid of lots of Chinese steel? Do we already have tons of Chinese steel here? So in the precision machining industry, the Chinese steel isn't so much a problem. There's no doubt that China has overbuilt the capacity to manufacture steel in the world. They can produce more steel than they can use. They can produce more steel than the, 
the world can use. So uh, they are the, the giant in the room, and, and, and because of that, they're able to affect our prices uh, in, in the world in that they have control over uh, what the price is for demand for the raw materials used to make it. So, But the scary part is you don't know exactly what the quality is because it comes from there and you don't know what their regulations are. Well, that's, that's, that's one issue. For, for our shops, we're buying bars, which are long products, and bars are notoriously difficult to maintain in, in pristine condition over the water as opposed to big hot roll coils. Because they rust. Well, they, they can rust, and the, the finish on a bar is, I mean, it's just there's a lot of surface area to rust per, per volume. So it's, nice. But what about, so what would they normally use Chinese steel for, like construction? Well, I you know I'm thinking that a lot of the pressure on uh, uh, on the Chinese steel coming into this country is for flat roll. Flat roll product can be used for automotive. It could be used for appliances. It could be used for office furniture. It could be used for the rails on a bunk bed that your kids are sleeping on. It could be used on almost anything, and you know, and there's just a glut of that available, and it's not necessarily being sold at a true cost of production. So the bigger deal is the trade or the bigger deal is the quality of it? Well, as, as a consumer, I'm very concerned about quality. But as a U.S. citizen, I'm also concerned about economic patriotism. Okay? Economic patriotism. Economic patriotism, you know. Uh, I'm driving a Honda. I'm driving a Honda Civic. It's a hybrid. I get 46.7 miles per gallon. <laughs> that Honda is made with steel out of Ohio. It's manufactured with machine parts out of Ohio and Indiana. And where is it assembled? In the U.S. I so do you consider it an American car? I do. I consider Honda and Toyota to be the new domestics. They're are, they, the domestic. are they more American than a GM car? Well, I would say that they have taken less government subsidies than a GM car, <laughs> and that they did. What about Ford? Ford doesn't take as much. Ford right? Ford did not have a subsidy. Ford went through the 0809 recession right. on their own. They actually um, they put their their logo, their trademark, in a pawn shop. That was what they used to get credit. Throughout the recession, and then when they when the recession was over and they they'd managed to restructure, they bought back the rights to their own branding. What do you mean they put it in a pawn shop? Uh, they they literally borrowed against the the equity that they put up to get the credit they needed for their restructuring uh, efforts was literally they got it by pledging their brand. It was it's really gutsy. It was really gutsy. what does that mean? Um, you know, at, at your company, you may have a lot of machines. You need to get some some financing. You can tell the bank, hey, I got these machines. I got this real estate, whatever. Well, nobody wanted the real estate right. in 08 and 09 because it's not liquid. And nobody wants the machines because, quite frankly, nobody's buying parts. So okay. who cares? But my brand, my brand, Graf Pinker brand, this is worth something. Trump. Trump. Well, whatever. <laughs> Whatever. So they that was literally what they used to uh, get the support they needed to to weather that storm. Is a Toyota or a Honda, is it 
theoretically more American? Is there more American content? Stuff, oh, stuff abso- in abso- that car? Absolutely. So I think uh, that's if, amazing. If, if it, well, it is. They're they're new domestics, and so the first thing I would I would tell everybody to look at is the very first number on your vehicle identifier. If it's a one, the VIN number. The VIN number. If that first digit's a one, it's made here in the U.S. Hmm. That's all you need to know, really. I, I drive a, a, a Hyundai Sonata. Is that also American or less? So uh, Hyundai, I think, has a plant in Alabama. Okay. Uh, and at their plant. I actually toured that plant, and I've got a mental block on what city it's in in Alabama. It's, I can't speak to that model. Okay, but I mean, like, fine, uh, a Honda Accord. Are there more parts and more assembly done in the United States than um, a Cadillac? Well, I, I can't speak to the Cadillac, but I, if the VIN number is one, the answer is yes. Okay. If the, and, and if you Google, you know, domestic content, you'll be amazed at the number of new domestics. Interesting. And, and a lot of our members have felt this pressure for the last decade of our, our customers, our, our, you know, our tier two and, and tier one customers being so aggressive on price that they would go to Mexico, they would go to overseas to save a tiny amount of money rather than buy from us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, economic patriotism is a thing, and I'm proud to drive a Honda Civic. <laughs> but it's not even really, you wouldn't even drive it out of economic patriotism. You're driving because you want to, right? Well, I love the car. I mean, yeah, I'm not here to do a car commercial, but I love the car, and since I bought a hybrid, I haven't had a part, uh, speeding ticket. Which car is it? It's the Honda Civic Hybrid. Honda Civic. It's a hybrid. And so what I've learned over over my lifetime in industry is that you get what you measure. And until I got a hybrid car, I measured miles per hour Mm -hmm. and maybe how much it costs to fill it up. Once I got a hybrid, it's got readouts for miles per gallon. And by driving for miles per gallon, I'm no longer aggressively driving. I'm no longer speeding. Interesting. And I haven't had I haven't had a speeding ticket. So you're approaching your driving differently. It's a totally totally different approach. So I know my miles per gallon. I know it costs me about a nickel a mile to drive that car. If you drive it in a certain way, the way that I choose to drive it be based on the feedback that it gives me. And, and so I ask people in their shops, what are you using for your feedback? What's the one indicator that tells you whether you're So it's, it's less about it being a hybrid and more about the feedback. It, it is about the feedback. But the, they never gave me miles per gallon feedback so is it kind of like on the, my V8. It's kind of like a Fitbit, but for cars. Well, it is. But you know what? At, 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 or Apple Watch. Right. At, at the miles per gallon, is, it's seductive. It's seductive. So what can I do? Can I coast down this hill? Is there anybody behind me? Can I let it get down to 55? Yeah, I could be at 70, but if at 55, I'm getting over 100 Okay, what if that day. car, that entire car was assembled, all the parts produced in China, uh, knowing that you love it as much as you do? 
uh, you know, I would find something of comparable <laughs> utility that would be made by my friends and neighbors and their kids. And yeah. Okay. Tariffs. I'm, it sounds like everybody's getting on you about this, but I've been very busy. I've been very busy since the announcement of tariffs. I was working some seventy-five hour weeks trying to well, stay on top of that. Our okay, but so just for the precision machining companies in the PMPA, say, are they happy about them? Are they not happy about them? Are they mixed? So the idea that we need tariffs, I mean, it is really pretty aggravating. So. Um, we'd been very successful in our work on government relations over the last couple years, getting some tax rules changed, uh, permanent uh, ex- depreciation rules, stuff like that. And so the, the last tax bill came out and everybody said, wow, this is great. This is going to help us, you know, uh, address I'll ask you some, about that later. It, yeah. Well, but that was that's an important thing to understand. So the tax bill, you know, those changes were like they were positive, and so everybody's like, ah, oh, you know, we can invest, we can hire people for small businesses. That absolutely, was positive. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we're really, you know, excited. We we'd made a difference in our in our work on on the hill, and then the tariffs come out, and it's going to be a twenty five percent increase on the raw materials that we buy. So from China from from the world. But I thought that from they the were world. when they first were announced it was the world, the world. And it's like and now they don't exactly know. Well, there it, it's it's been an iter- iterative process. So it was like 25% and we were going wow, you know, we're going to be 25% less competitive on on the raw materials that we buy. And by the way, the foreign countries, they don't have to pay that on the raw materials that they buy. The foreign machine shops won't. And by the way, there's no tariff on finished goods, only on raw materials. Hmm. So that would leave us at a 25% disadvantage just on raw materials and would actually give the foreign machine products you know, so it gives them incentive to make the cars over there then? Well, to make gonna, the parts over there using but, their steel. And to assemble the cars there too, right, if they're going to bring the cars in? So if, if, if a Ford plant in Detroit wanted to buy a power steering pump shaft mm-hmm. and they wanted to buy it from one of our member companies, our member company would pay 25% more for steel for that power steering pump shaft. Ah. But if they went to... China, Vietnam, Mexico, Brazil, any place, said, hey, we want this power steering pump shaft. They're not paying 25% more. And they're not paying. Because the steel was cheaper. Because there's no tariff on. They're not paying a tariff. They're buying local steel. But we don't have enough local steel? In some grades, we don't. There are some grades and qualities that the U.S. doesn't. But the fact is... GM or Ford, in this example, could say, okay, the U.S. guy can make this part, and it's 25% more expensive for the steel. And maybe that Not makes to mention the labor and Yeah, the and our labor, and we and have to meet all these, these demanding regulations that make sense. They make sense. But it's not apples to apples if the guy in Brazil doesn't have to meet the same labor standards, doesn't have to, you know, is allowed to use kids to... <laughs> to clean up the shop and and is not paying what we're paying. So they've got 
for the their steels twenty five percent cheaper. So it puts us at a disadvantage. Okay. It wasn't well thought out. So what's the advantage? What's what, what, what would be the positives to tariffs for the U.S. Just that it puts pressure on them to uh, play fair. Well, I, right. So I don't. Uh, it's really interesting to me because the tariff seems to me to be something you would do to an enemy. So we don't like the way the Iranians handle things in their part of the world. So we put economic sanctions on them, mm-hmm. and we try and isolate them, and we forbid them from getting certain parts and technologies. And so we don't like the way the Russians are behaving. So we say, you know what, we're going to put in economic sanctions, and we're going to forbid some technologies and this and that. And, you know, the North Koreans, we don't like their their policies. So we say, sure. you know what, you can't have this or that. So what the tariffs do, uh, have done is they've taken our federal government and it has done the same thing to the American worker in metalworking that we're doing to but the our, Iranians and the Russians and the North Koreans. You guys now have to pay more for the steel. We're going to control mm-hmm. your access to this. It's We would do that in time of war. We would do that to an enemy. It's not a time of war, and they're doing that to us. They're doing that to us. That's crazy. It is crazy. However, and I... I don't I'm I don't know the reality but does China have tariffs on us on our stuff So one of the interesting things that we learned on our study mission was you could not be a solely owned foreign company in China you had to have a Chinese partner mm-hmm. And by the way the Chinese partner had to have full access to your technology Every, so and every, by the every, way, every multinational company over there, they have some Chinese ownership? There, there, are, there is Chinese ownership. Now, the Chinese have just relaxed a rule on ownership for car companies. So wait a second. What if one of, say, a job shop or one of the members of the PMPA wanted to have a, a plant in China, there would have to be Chinese ownership for that? They would partner, they would partner with a Chinese firm. It okay. would not be a wholly owned foreign subsidiary. All right, and they're under ch- prior law. They're changing that now. Maybe I, I believe that that's okay. and part of that. I think so. This there was an announcement that they're going to allow uh, foreign companies in China for in the automotive space, and Tesla is going to be a big winner in that. And um, I suspect that that Tes- Tesla is going to. Build a plant in China. Yeah, there, that's what the the press speculation is. But the interesting thing to me is uh, that probably wouldn't have been announced without the tariff issue. I think the tariff issue has forced a lot of people to reconsider just what are the impacts of the regulations that they have on trade and restrictions they have on trade. So, um, but does China have tariffs on? I mean, those are really interesting things you said. But do they have tariffs on? American sure components going in there sure they do so and cars I mean there's so the there's, point yeah. of this was to try to get them to relax their tariffs is that what the point of it was no I think the point of it was that our, our president stated pretty clearly he wanted to see American steel mills and aluminum mills up working at at their capacity mm-hmm. and he wanted to see for our ability to defend ourselves uh, greater reliance on domestic source materials. Now, the reality of that is our defense efforts require maybe 3% of our total output. And 
I don't have a real good handle on a figure, but probably 20 or 25 percent of that is of such a quality that we have to bring it in from one of our NATO partner countries. There may be, you know, uh, maybe a steel that's right, so. a high quality from Germany, Italy, or France that is just not made here. That's crazy. It is. It is crazy. But but here's the thing: no one would have dreamed that the White House would use an entire industry as a negotiating technique. On the next episode of the Today's Machining World podcast. I am voting with my own children. I'm saying this industry is a great industry. And by the way, my son, my my son, my namesake, I'm happy to have in, in our industry where he's thriving. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing, but it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. It'll just take a second and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.